Good morning. It is great to come together once again and worship God and great to once again have an opportunity to share with you this morning. And as always, my prayer is that what I share is encouraging and uplifting and strengthening to all of our faith. You know, the name Pontius Pilate is one of the most notorious names in history. Pilate is usually viewed as the villain in the story of our Savior's death. But I think if you dismiss the account of Pilate so quickly, we may miss some lessons that we can learn from his story. Pilate was no bumbling idiot. Instead, he was actually a shrewd politician. To help us better understand Pilate's actions towards Jesus on that day, I want to share with you some context about his political history. And fortunately, there are plenty of historical references to Pilate and his interactions with the people outside of scriptures, enough for us to paint a better picture of the time up until Pilate sentenced Jesus to die. And there are two specific events that are recorded that I want to talk about. You know, Pilate was appointed governor of Judea about the same time Jesus began his preaching ministry. In Rome, when a new governor was appointed, he would bring his own private army with him, and the army would march into town carrying large standards, these flagpoles topped with graven images of eagles and lions or the likeness of Caesar. The one exception to this practice was Jerusalem and the cities of Judea, because the Jews objected to these standards as being idols. And generally speaking, when the empire, within the Roman Empire, Romans didn't want to cause riots, and they enjoyed and valued keeping peace. Pilate, when elected, decided to move his army and their standards during the night, so that when the Jews awoke the next morning, they were greeted with what they considered graven images throughout the city. No previous governor had so blatantly offended the Jews. History tells us the Jews of Jerusalem began to riot at this offense and surrounding Pilate's palace for five days demanded he remove the offensing standards. The Jewish historian Josephus writes that Pilate threatened to execute the rioting Jews, who responded to these threats by stretching out their necks and declaring death preferable to living with the sight of the graven images. So Pilate relented, the standards were removed, and the rioting ceased. One of Pilate's first acts as governor was to build a waterway into Jerusalem. Pilate had an aqueduct built that facilitated farming and provided running water to most of Jerusalem. However, he stirred up the Jews once again by taking money from the temple treasury and used it to finance the waterworks. A second riot broke out and Pilate warned he would not be merciful. He went, he sent soldiers into the crowd that were disguised as peasants, and using weapons hidden under their clothing, the soldiers began slaughtering the rioting Jews. Now, I think it's beneficial to have these two events in our minds as we read and examine from the scriptures the way Pilate then handles the trial of Jesus. And so we're going to start in John chapter 18, if you want to follow along. John chapter 18, and I'm going to start by reading verses 28 through 38. 
Starting in verse 28, it says this, Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? They answered, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves. Judge him according to your laws. The Jews replied, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him. In this first interaction, we see that under Roman law, the Jews could not execute Jesus. And so they sent Jesus to stand trial before Pilate. They changed the accusation from blasphemy, a Jewish threat, to that of treason, a Roman threat. Now, in the Roman trial, there were four major steps that took place, and all four are evident in John's account. The first step that took place in a Roman trial was accusation. And we see in verse 28 through 32 that the Jews delivered Jesus to Pilate for trial and execution. The second is interrogation. Pilate questions Jesus in 33 through 35, asking Jesus to see if there's any evidence that he plans to overthrow the Roman government. The third is defense. Through 36 and 38, up to this point, Jesus has said very little. But now he chooses to speak to Pilate, although Pilate misses the truth of Jesus' words. And then finally, there's a verdict. In verse 38, the second part, we see that Pilate is convinced that Jesus has been wrongly accused. Now, to fill out this account, let's jump over to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 7. So it says, Then the assembly, arose, the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began accusing him, saying, We found this man perverting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor. Again, treason. And saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you say so. Then Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowds, I find no basis for an accusation against this man. But they were insistent and said, He stirs up the people by teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, where he began even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was Galilean. And when he learned that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him off to Herod, 
who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. So Luke here gives us additional information. During the interrogation, the Jewish leaders mentioned that Jesus is a Galilean in verse 5. And so Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, hoping Herod would deal with Jesus. Let's continue reading starting at verse 8. It continues, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had been wanting to see him for a long time, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see him in person do some signs. He questioned him at some length, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Even Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then he put an elegant robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. That same day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. Before this, they had been enemies. So in this account, although Pilate gains a political ally, Pilate still has to deal with Jesus. And now Pilate's getting desperate. He doesn't want to deal with Jesus. Jesus. He doesn't want to deal with the Jewish leaders. So Luke records two desperate events by Pilate to placate the Jews. Let's finish off in 13, uh, Luke chapter 23. I'm going to start, finish reading from 20, uh, 13 to 25. So it continues after Jesus comes from Herod. It says, Pilate then called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was perverting the people. And here I have examined him in your presence, and I have found this man not guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. Indeed, he has done nothing to deserve death. I will therefore have him flogged and release him. Then they all shouted all to get out together, Away with this fellow! Release Barabbas to us! This was a man who had been put in prison for an insurrection that had taken place in the city for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! And a third time he said to them, What? Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no ground for the sentence of death. I will therefore have him flogged and release him to you. But they kept urgently demanding with loud shouts that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate gave his verdict that their demand should be granted. He released the man they asked for, the one who had been put in prison for insurrection and murder, and he handed Jesus over as they wished. So here we see Jesus before Pilate again. He's just come back from Herod. And in the second time, Jesus or Pilate, or Pilate's trying to placate to the Jews. And the first thing he tries to do is he tries to play upon their sympathy. He tries to play upon the sympathy of the Jews. And Pilate is hoping to have Jesus roughed up. It's going to be enough to hopefully have the Jews relent. Look, I beat him up. This would have been a horrible scourging that Jesus endures, and he's hoping that's enough for them. But it's not. And so he then tries to bargain with Barabbas. You know, Matthew refers to Barabbas as a notorious prisoner. And the Greek word means bearing a mark. Why was he bearing a mark? He had been thrown in prison for murder because he had been a part of a riot. And Pilate thinks he can bargain with the angry mob he faces. He bets if he gives the choice between a known murderer or an innocent man that they'll relent. But he's wrong. 
Cries of, we want Barabbas and crucify him, rise from the crowd and echo off the streets. Pilate hopes to deal with the Jew, or hopes to deal with the Jews, but they've made up their collective mind. Jesus must die. So Pilate tries one desperate move to get off the hook. Pilate appeals to Jesus, hoping that Jesus will defend himself. To round off the story, let's jump over to John. Jump back to John. We're going to go to chapter 19. And we're going to read verses 13 through 16. So in John chapter 19, we read this, starting in verse 13. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat on the judge's bench at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. He said to the Jews, Here is your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate asked them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but the emperor. Then he handed him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which is in Hebrew called Golgotha. Pilate appeals to Jesus, hoping that Jesus will defend himself. When we, he heard the reply, Pilate knew he had nowhere to run. You know, Matthew tells us that Pilate took water, washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. Pilate is convinced that the wrong thing to do is kill Jesus. You know, the, there's a theologian named Willem Barclay. And he reflects on the irony of the words the Jews called out here, where they said, there is no king but Caesar. They said, when the Romans first came into Palestine, they had taken a census in order to arrange the normal taxation to which people were subject to. And there had been a most bloody rebellion, because the Jews had insisted that God alone was their king, and to him alone they would pay tribute. And so when the Jewish leaders said, we have no king but Caesar, it must have taken Pilate's breath away. And he must have looked at them in some half-bewildered, half-cynical amusement. The Jews were prepared to abandon every principle they had in order to eliminate Jesus. You know, at the start of this message, I said you couldn't understand Pilate's decision regarding Jesus unless you understood his past. You see, Pilate knew he had before him an innocent man. He wanted to release Jesus rather than kill him. He also knew he had an angry mob of Jewish men heading toward a riot. And when they uttered the words, you are no friend of Caesar's, Pilate knew he had no choice. The Jews knew enough about Rome to know that Rome didn't like trouble within their empire. If a governor or a providential leader couldn't keep order, they could replace him with someone who could. And Pilate knew that, and he also knew that Rome's idea of a retirement plan included death. There had been two major riots within just a few years' span with Pilate in Judea. It was unlikely that Rome would tolerate a third riot under the same governor. Pilate did what the oldest Pilate did what he did for the oldest reason of all selfishness. Pilate had Jesus executed to save his political neck. 
Pilate heeded neither his conscience nor his wife, who in Matthew 27, 19 said, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. History does not record a second opportunity for Pilate. In fact, according to ancient historians, Pilate was soon removed from his position as a governor and exiled until his death. But why do we review all this? What's this account of Pilate have to do with us today? Well, I think there's several lessons and applications to be drawn from the scriptures that we've been reading this morning. The first is we see a sobering reminder of worldly thinking. You know, Pilate asks an important question. What is truth? We don't know what the spirit of that question was. Was Pilate simply engaging in rhetoric or philosophy? Was he being sarcastic? Was he asking a sincere question? I don't know what was behind the question, but it's a question that our society has great difficulty answering. Charles Colson wrote a book, Body Life, and in it, he describes what I think are good characteristics of the contemporary approach to truth. First is that contemporary society is secular. It has no thought about things eternal. The focus is only on the here and now. Even religion is focused on what it can do for me now. R.C. Sproul said that contemporary people are betting everything on the fact that this life is the only thing and there is no judgment. Secondly, is the prevailing society believes all nature is equal in value. The animals should have the same rights as human. Earth Day gets more attention than the resurrection. The result is that we live in a world where people are poisoned to protest the alleged inhumane treatment of rats. Ecological terrorists booby trap the Northeast loggers to protect spotted owls. The idea that man alone is created in God's image is dismissed especially when we see the value of existence of endangered species become more valuable than human life. Third is that the uh, contemporary society believes in the basic innocence of man. People believe that man is good and in time only getting better. The problem with this, of course, is how do we explain evil things that are done? Well, they do it simply by two things. They either deny that those things are really wrong. In other words, there's no immorality, it's just standards imposed by society on us, by less enlightened times, or they blame wrongdoing on some outside source. It's like a sickness or someone else's influence. The result is we have a society filled with victims. The criminal is no longer guilty of a crime, he's a victim of a bad home life. The chorus is familiar, it's somebody else's fault. So people say what's needed are not repentance or discipline, but more programs and oversight to correct evil society. Fourth, he says society is pragmatic. Today we would love to hear someone honestly ask, what is truth? But today the only question is, does it work? Does it make me feel good? Does it get me what I want? You know, a church is good not because of the feelings it produces or the people that show up, but because it proclaims and stands on the truth. The standard of truth, God's word, has been replaced by the standard of personal preference and whim. The result is an entire generation of people chasing the wind. If you want to stand in the storms, you must have an anchor, and that anchor 
should be unchanging truth. Pilate asks the right question. It's a question we need to ask as well. What is truth? What is our standard of truth? How do we, to, how do we determine what is right and what is wrong? Is the Bible truly our standard of truth? Or is this just what we profess? Do we look to Jesus as our master and leader, or do we steadfastly refuse to give anyone a position of authority in our lives? You know, the second application is that excuses do not negate responsibility. Four times, four times, Pilate tried to avoid sentencing Jesus to death. When he tried to give him back to the Jewish authorities, when he sent him to Herod, when he offered the Jews a choice between Jesus and Barabbas, and finally when he washes his hands of the situation. But Pilate still signed the death warrant. All the excuses and rationalizations cannot change the fact that he didn't set Jesus free, but he condemned him to die. Maybe Pilate felt backed into a corner. Maybe the peer pressure wore him down. Maybe he was afraid he would lose his job with another poor report to Rome. These things may make Pilate seem more understandable, but that doesn't make him any less guilty. We need to remember that when we are so quickly to excuse our abusive behavior or we rationalize not praying and reading scripture daily, when we explain why we didn't share our faith, when we seek to justify a marital affair, when we tell why we didn't help the person in need, when we explain why we lost our temper, when we share why we played on someone else's emotions. Pilate reminds us that no excuses are acceptable. We are responsible for our own actions. We cannot hide behind our family background, our physical yearnings, or our tough breaks in life. We are responsible for what we do. This is absolutely essential for us to understand before we receive God's forgiveness. We must accept responsibility for our actions before we can become a recipient of grace. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying we have to fix our problems before we can receive grace. Then we want to need grace. We must admit and acknowledge our sins before we receive grace. Honest Christians do not sit in worship pretending to have no problems. We're here confessing that we do have problems. It is only then that we will be ready to receive God's help. A third application is that we see the Christian approach to opposition. You know, Jesus gives us a wonderful illustration here of how to face opposition. He doesn't face his accusers aggressively. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't threaten to sue. He tells the truth without malice or anger. There's no personal attacks, there's no shouting matches, there's no power plays, just a tender heart. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we read this, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. If anyone had the right to complain, it was Jesus. He is the creator of the universe. He could have destroyed his accusers with a word, but he didn't. He voluntarily gave up his rights. In Ephesians 5.21, we're told, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. God's surprising formula for success is humility and service. Finally, we see a fitting picture of enduring love. Jesus did not have to endure this indignity, but he did. He could have not gone through all of this and claimed his rightful place as Lord of the universe, but he didn't. Why? Because he knew it was the only way for salvation to become made available to those who believe. His sacrifice was necessary for our salvation. Jesus gave his life not just for those who loved him, but for those who accused and crucified him. You know, I, I hope reflecting on this account of Pontius Pilate has been beneficial. That it stirred up within us encouragement in our faith. But above all, I hope through reflecting on this account, we see the love of God through Jesus Christ, his son. In the passage, we can see all kinds of things. We see justice perverted, the stubbornness of sin illustrated, the importance of recognizing truth. But more than that, more than all those things, what we should see is the never-ending love of God. He offers his love and his grace to those that admit that they need it. This morning, if you have a need, if you need a prayer of encouragement, we invite you forward. If you've not confessed your need for God's forgiveness nor placed your faith in Jesus, the invitation is extended to you. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God, repent of your sins, and then join him in Christian baptism. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.